0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like pumpkins, bunions and radicals.
1: <laughs> oh my God, I want to do all of those. <laughs> uh, but keeping with the keeping, <laughs> keeping with the theme of peas, uh, pillows, painfulness and peers, pontifract, pluckiness and peers. You notice there, there are two kinds of peers. Uh, there's... Uh, there's Piers as in Piers, Piers, uh, aristocrats. Uh, oh, right, and there's okay. Piers as in uh, those things, what you have at the seaside. And, of course, my, uh, my good friend, Piers, uh, who, who, who texted me last night saying, uh, did I want to try some gin he's just made at home? Uh, bathtub gin. Uh, I thought, what a way to ruin Christmas by getting poisoned by bathtub gin. However, this is to digress monstrously because we will be explaining... We will, be, we will not simply be explaining. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of the lean is all about pensioners' disability, urbanisation, extortion. It's about leaning on people, which, of course, leads us to the history of thumbs. It's all about thumbscrews and the mafia. Um, or that the history of luck... Is all about the Vikings and divine protection, and that's another little chapter from our brilliant book on the Vikings. <laughs>
0: We've been talking about the Vikings a lot, haven't we? It was one of my favourite. We favorite have. I books love the Vikings. Write. I
1: wish I were a Viking historian. You're or, all wondering, or a historian of Vikings, not a Viking. Uh, <laughs> that would be virtually
0: impossible. You're all wondering who's talking. Uh, let me explain. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me, we're across from town, doing this over Zoom. If history was an impoverished orphan child grovelling in <laughs> snot and filth on the roadside of the great thoroughfare of the past, this man would raise him or her up, feed and clothe him or her, and then most importantly describe the event in careful and clear prose with photographs and oral testimony of eyewitnesses to not only save that poor historical child, but would also use the story of that child's salvation to educate the Inquis- Children and adults, both male and female, in the present. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Did you follow? Hello, that?
1: Sam. I thought you were going to describe me as a, as a snot-nosed child <laughs> there, um, but I, I much prefer the sort of the, the, the historically minded uh, philanthropist. Very good. I, I, and I would, I would. I would, of course. I would, of course, do exactly that. I mean, you've got me down to a T there. Uh, And the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say that if he were a defeated military leader, no loser would he be. But rather a statuesque, albeit diminutive figure like one of his historical... Heroes, your only Napoleon Bonaparte, Sam. <laughs> yes, you've loser. guessed it—the <laughs> famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis. No, but I, I get the sense, having known you a while, um, I get the sense that, that there is something about Napoleon that you're that you love. There is oh. something that you respect about him that hmm. he, you know, he's a tactician um, and one of sort of history's, you know, true greats. I think certainly ambitious, James. Yes. Certainly, but yes. so anyway, we, we've moved on
0: to me when I mean, we should be on somewhere in the past. We, we are carrying on our. Our podcast discussion of the history of losers uh, we've been enjoying it so much we've decided to uh, carry on with our research in our chat because there is more to be uncovered here um, in episode one we talked about all sorts of things James touched on um, American culture and and the death of the salesman and the the, the way that actually being a loser is so entwined with um, American culture if there's going to be such a focus on winners I thought that was really really interesting. I talked a bit about Victorian poverty and charity so do please go and check that out we're going to be carrying on now with our discussion on losers James where are you going to take us
1: well I'm going to take us in various directions uh, I'm going to talk about uh, military losers so about surrender uh, I'm going to talk about confederate statues possibly uh, and a little bit of oral history in there so a way that one can actually get at the losers in history Uh, So those people who aren't necessarily the victors. So I could talk about that. But who who wants to start? I know you start with your military losers. That sounds interesting. Okay, military losers. Well, this sort of picks up um, from where we left off in the last episode where we were talking about concession speeches. And we were talking about people who had lost uh, political elections uh, actually conceding in a graceful and honourable way. And I think this is something that we also see in the military sphere and we see very much in the the military world. So when a particular uh, army has been defeated, there is a sort of tradition of military honour uh, in defeat. So there's often a, a surrender ceremony where... The defeated troops are, are allowed to parade out often with um, with some kind of anthem uh, being played and they're able to go out in a sort of in a in an honourable way. I mean, then, of course, they have to give up all of their um, all of their weapons and go off and, and they're either then. Prisoners of war, or they have, you know, some sort of free free passage here. And one very famous um, example of this is, of course, the surrender at Yorktown, uh, where the British general uh, Cornwallis uh, surrenders to uh, the the American army on the nineteenth of October, seventeen eighty-one, at the height of the American Revolution, or or the war of independence and what's interesting here is the negotiation uh of the surrender between uh between Cornwallis and, and Washington and they they do this over over correspondence and then what you have is the creation of um once they've agreed everything you have the this sort of consolidated in something called the articles of capitulation and i've going to read you a little bit uh of that here because i think it's quite telling about how this sort of honourable surrender can happen. On October 19th, 1781, the British and Hessian forces under the command of Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to the French and American forces at Yorktown, Virginia. Below are the negotiated terms of that historic surrender. And then there's a sort of preamble that is sort of it's all about settled between his excellency general washington commander in chief of the combined forces of america and france blah 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 blah. article one the garrisons of york and gloucester including the officers and seamen of his britannic Majesty's ships as well as other mariners to surrender themselves prisoners of war to the combined forces of america and france the land troops to remain prisoners to the United States, the Navy to the Naval Army of His Most Christian Majesty, granted. Article 2. The artillery, arms, accoutrements, military chest and public stores of every denomination shall be delivered unimpaired to the heads of departments appointed to receive them, granted. At tw- Article 3. At 12 o'clock this day, the two redoubts on the left flank of York to be delivered The one to a detachment of American infantry, the other to a detachment of French grenadiers. The garrison of York, and this is interesting, the garrison of York will march out to a place to be appointed in front of the two posts at two o'clock precisely with shouldered arms, colours cased and drums beating a British or German march. They are then to ground their arms and return to their encampments where they will remain until they are dispatched to the places of their destination. Two works on the Gloucester side will be delivered at one o'clock to a detachment of French and American troops appointed to possess them the garrison will march out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon the cavalry with their swords drawn trumpets sounding and the infantry in the manner prescribed for the garrison of york they are likewise to return to their encampments until they can be finally marched off article 4 and this is this is fascinating in terms of the hierarchy here Officers are to retain their sidearms, both officers and soldiers to keep their private property of every kind and no part of their baggage or papers to be taken at any time subject to search or inspection. The baggage and papers of officers and soldiers taken during the siege to be likewise preserved for them it is understood that any property obviously belonging to the inhabitants of these states in the possession of the garrison shall be subject to be reclaimed. So there we are and it continues like that but I think what's interesting here is even in defeat the once you have surrendered there is an honourable sort of there's an honourable ceremony in which you are able to maintain dignity as as a um, surrendering force and to march out in sort of military pomp and ceremony albeit to go you know your your separate ways and to be to be unarmed or to be uh prisoners of war so there we are there's my honorable defeat I mean you probably know a lot about this you've written all about this haven't you
0: <coughs> well I, I do know a bit about it um the Cornwallis is an interesting one because he actually didn't hand over his sword in person at Yorktown because uh, he was either too embarrassed or he was too ill, I suspect there might have been a little Trump in that, and he was like, he sent someone else <laughs> to go and do it, to go and hand his sword over to Washington. Pathetic. Um, but you know, once he's he's been captured, you, he's he's an official loser. You've gone through all this kind of legal process. He gets sent home because he's a you know high ranking person. Yeah. And um I it also happened to uh Villeneuve after the battle of Trafalgar he's he's sent home he's captured and sent home and he spends his spends a couple of years in Tiverton or somewhere in Devon near us and I love the idea of um a, a bunch of military losers basically walking around, kind of on parole, basically, in in the British countryside. So it uh, would be a really interesting history to map there, to, well, to see where they went, because um, there were a lot of them. There was a hell of a lot of fighting going on, a hell of a lot of people who were captured, who were beaten, who were losers in the eyes of the British, and um, were made to, um, well, enjoy or pass their time um, in, in, in Britain. Uh, I know nothing about this at all. I don't know if anyone's done any history on it. I bet they haven't. But I reckon you could plot the geographies of it. You could map their experiences. Um, a bit like being an exile, isn't it? And there are two ways of doing it. You've got the the foreign people who have been uh, been beaten, like Villeneuve, and he has to come back and live in France. Or you've got people like Cornwallis, who is a British person who has been beaten, but he's allowed to go home and he's on parole and can't fight. So there you are. The geography of um, surrendered, surrendered military people, I think, would be would
1: be very interesting indeed. Well done, James. Um, yes, and there are lots of examples of of generals who who didn't take that sort of honourable surrender uh, when offered to sort of march out in a, a sort of honorific way like that. They they declined, um, be, you know, because ultimately it is it is humiliating. Yeah, you, know, you have to walk past a whole load of of um, you know of enemy troops um and then give up your arms hmm. um you know, why would you put yourself through that
0: yeah um i'm going to talk about something significantly different james uh, I, I was in in a car driving to the beach the other day uh, as i do to take my dog for a walk and i was listening to a truly horrifying podcast on the economic implications of covid and what, what what's going to be going on and it was particularly in relation to what was happening in america and who was actually really going to lose out from this. Um, I've been thinking about it a bit uh, in terms of, you know, who who is suffering more from COVID um, than others, and why and how politics and economics and social status have an impact on that. Anyway, it made me think about the Wall Street crash, because the numbers that were being thrown out were... were there, there are so many parallels, it's quite significantly alarming. Um, just, this is quite interesting. The... Um, Unemployment in America between 1928 and 1933. So in 1928, you've got one million unemployed, just over a million. 1929, just over a million. So it's kind of hovering. Um, The Wall Street crash um, is in in, uh, 1929. So it takes a while for the impact to be felt, is my point. So there's an economic crisis and it takes a while to be felt. So it goes from one million in 28 and 29, four million, 1930, eight million, 1931, 12 million 1932 and then all the way up to 13 million in 1933 so you've got the depression coming and the wall street crash they're not necessarily as linked as you might suspect but by the 30s you've america has been turned into a a land of unemployment tramps bread queues soup kitchens people being evicted from their homes people living on their streets um it was a, a time of the, the hobo, um, thousands of men out of work traveling the country in search of work. So some of the images I found from this period are, are staggering. Um, there's an image here of New York in 1931 of people queuing. Um, it Looks like they're they're near um, a central station. Um, for they're queuing for cheap food. That is exactly it's a, it's a land of hunger. Um, at the same time, um, there's the the, the the utter distress that's caused by this leads to a huge rise in suicides. So these figures are per 100,000 people. Uh, In 1926, there are 12 suicides per 100,000 people. 28 goes up to 13 in a bit. 1932, it's 18. And it comes down again, but it peaks in 1932. So that's 31, it's three years after the crash itself. Um, in terms of finances, that you know, to put a real sense of what's going on here, um, this is from 1936, talking about shares in a cigar company at the time of the crash were selling for $115. And the market collapsed and the share price dropped to $2. Um, and there are all sorts of other examples just like that. Um, this is a description of what was going on in America in 1930, so uh, October, November, September, January, five or six months after the Wall Street crash. Um, When I was taken through some of the 87 buildings that made up the plant, this is a car plant, a a car factory, I was reminded of the old desert towns left in the wake of the gold rush. There was the same sense of suspended life as I moved among silent, untended machines or walked through departments where hundreds of half-finished automobile bodies gathered dust. Um... And then a particular thing here on evictions in 1931, which I think is one of the most terrifying things because it it leads to the the homelessness, which then uh, generates its own social problems. Thousands of working-class families have been thrown out of their homes because they can no longer pay the rent. In the streets of every large city, workers are dropping and dying from starvation and exposure. Every newspaper reports suicides of these workers who are driven to such Desperation. So um, I think there's a bit of a bit to be learned um, about the Wall Street Crash and the reasons for it. Um, overproduction very important. The unequal um, distribution of wealth uh, and the overproduction thing I think is particularly interesting. So you, you basically you've got um, fewer products being sold, um, which is partly caused by overproduction in its own sense, but also because of taxes which are put on foreign. Um, foreign goods by the Americans Um, and this is all to do with isolationism after the first world war so in the years after 1919 the Americans returned to a period of isolationism in foreign policy and the republican government places tariffs on imported goods to limit foreign competition in the American marketplace does that ring a bell James (laughs) certainly does doesn't it? Um, and that that helps with the problem of American goods. The Americans can't sell their stuff abroad, and then there's less money in America to buy the, the what what they are producing, and it goes into this vicious vicious cycle, which leads to the Wall Street crash. And there you go. So um, some pretty pretty frightening lessons from history. And the more you look into it, the more parallels there are with the present day.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I want to sort of pick pick up on that, um, but but sort of move back a hundred and hundred. And- or so years and to to talk to you about the book that I was talking about earlier on uh, or maybe in the last episode um, a book that I read called Born Losers a History of Failure uh, in America which is an award-winning book by an American historian called Scott A. Sandage and I would recommend that you all go and look at this um, because what he looks at is he's not interested in success Uh, within American society in the 19th century he's interested in failure Um, uh, he's interested in those who are in the bottom of society so and he says this book tells the story of America's unsung losers men who failed in a nation that worships success and you know when you have um, in the 19th century you've got uh, capitalism, you've got the industrial revolution, you've got the sense of entrepreneurship becoming part and parcel of success in American identity. You know, this is the rugged individual, this is the self-made man, you go from nothing to be a sort of, you know, multimillionaire millionaire um, industrialist. Um, what happens when you are unable to do that? It's a period when we have, you know, imperialist sort of expansion. We've got a rise of mass media. Um, You know, what happens to people who are unable to do that. And it's people who he describes as the um bankrupts, deadbeats, broken men, down and outers, bad risks, good for nothings, no accounts, third raters, flunkies, little men, loafers, small fries, small potatoes, old fogies, goners, flops, hasbeans, ne'er do wells, nobodies, forgotten men. I mean this is you know, the 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 richness of this vocabulary um is you know is is quite um is quite sort of expressive of the way in which what we're seeing here is an articulation of ideas to describe these people. You know, that the these people who are seen as failures. And the interesting several interesting things about the book that I want to talk about. One is the sources that he uses to actually examine the everyday lives experiences of these people uh, and the second is how the concept of losers emerges and i just want to say a, a few things here we haven't got time for me to go into it in in great detail but to start with the you know the way in which he captures this and you know in throughout the book you have these really vivid um little sort of um character sketches of White businessmen, sometimes their wives, as they fall into monetary trouble, so exactly the kind of individuals that you're talking about with the Wall Street crash. Um, they're 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 sort of you know these people are nobodies. They're all ordinary people, and what survives is account books and commonplace books and correspondence and diaries that he's that he's basically drawing from. And to just give you uh, some. You know examples here. We hear, for example of um, uh, a man in in New Hampshire called John Flagg who writes in uh, eighteen twenty five I have gushed into tears many a time. I was afraid I should never be able to get into business. Uh, another uh, Philadelphia Quaker, one Samuel C. Morton wrote in eighteen thirty three what a note of full reflection that I should have lived one-fourth of a century and yet have done so little good for any, self or others, nothing by which I am to be distinguished from the common herd of mankind. In 1841, Henry Hill, Thus far my life has quite too much the appearance of blankness. What can I show as the fruits of twenty years of my existence? Nothing.
0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with
1: Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. The thought that I am living so little to my own profit or service of anybody else, he writes in 1846 and he's he admits that he is i uh, admit a, a lack sometimes, but too severely, and so you know so it's how, what do we make of these experiences? How do people respond to failure in a time when you know when success is what is being paraded when being entrepreneurial and successful i mean this really is the sort of the the sort of period pre um death of a salesman, Arthur Miller's death of a salesman and, and Willie Loman. You're actually, you're not just seeing that expressed on stage, you're actually seeing it expressed in in individuals. Um, and another man in, in living in, in Rhode Island, in Providence, um, in 1852, writes in his diary, I need employment most of the time to keep off the blues. Business is dull and my spirit's low. I have made many mistakes in my life, which has been a blank nearly. So this idea of, of blankness, how do people actually deal with that? And I think one of the things that you can you can think about this is how does this how do you map this onto changing notions of what it is to be a loser? So at the same time that we're seeing this rise of the rugged individual, we're seeing industrial greatness, we're seeing immense wealth and productivity. You're also seeing alongside it a discourse of failure, um, and before the Civil War period, um, I think failure is described as a a business in peril. So it's, a, in other words, it's a business that is that is failing rather than the individual. But I think what you have there from the by about the 1850s is the idea of the failing individual and this is a period where you've really got these sort of pioneers and entrepreneurs you've got this go-ahead spirit and failure is seen is connected to a, a a lack of enterprise a fear of risk taking a reluctance to speculate and this is of course what leads to everyone coming a cropper in the wall street crash because everyone has been encouraged to sort of to speculate to invest you know if you don't you're seen as conservative and backward and you know and, and and a loser and it means that everyone sort of is 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 investing on the margin so there's basically no sort of capital underlying it and then the whole thing goes pop and the system falls down but what you have here is a sense that in popular culture this go-ahead spirit is deeply part of of the American psyche and I suppose what what you're seeing then is is an ideology that is you know that is attacking the individuals and their ambition Um, and you know you can think about it in terms of you know seeing somebody as as average Somebody who is uh, an outsider, somebody who's not the sort of, you know, the head of the you know, captain of the football team, so somebody who doesn't have a brilliant personality, is destined to be a loser. And one of the most interesting things about the book, uh, and I think, and I think it is a really, it's a fascinating cultural history that is really innovative and flexible in its thinking. And one of the most fascinating things for me was the way in which it used credit reports. So the idea that you what you have in the nineteenth century is the emergence of credit report surveillance. So you're actually looking at people's um creditworthiness and their ability to pay back money. And that actually that becomes a way of you know of of thinking about you know their worth in economic terms as an individual. So if somebody is creditworthy or not, they are seen as a, as an entrepreneur and as a success, as a sort of you know steady person. And if they're not creditworthy, if they can't pay back things, if they do become bankrupt, then they are seen as you know as as less than that. That they are they fall into that category of loser of bankrupt. And it's it's fascinating the way in which economic history there. You know, intertwines with something that is cultural and that is social and that is innately personal. So there we are, um, born losers. Mm. A
0: brilliant book. Yeah, I, really fascinating. That isn't it? The, certainly, the, the sort of the, the duality of of success and failure. You can't have one really without the other. Um, often, you know, with successful people measuring their success against the failures of others. So uh, yeah, I really love that. Um, this is a, uh, it's a similar kind of point actually is that you can't have one without another you can't have a success you can't have a victor without a loser that i want to talk about very briefly um and what got me thinking about it was uh, this whole issue of repatriation um be focusing on a brass cockerel that stood in the student dining hall in jesus college in cambridge it became the focus of a repatriation claim in 2016 it's a it's a, the, it's a cockerel it was um one of the 1,000 or so Benin bronzes taken from Benin City in present-day Nigeria um, during a punitive exhibition by the British Army in 1897. And so it had been kind of perched there while all the young scholars were eating their meals since the 1930s until, in 2016, um, the students got together and said that um, it needs to go back. It needs to go back to its place of origin. They, they launched a very successful campaign Um there are lots of other examples of this. I'll go on to why it's significant in a minute. Um, but there's a. I wanted to just draw attention to a, a kind of a, a new project of making amends, and it's something that really has only happened in in the last thirty or forty years ago, more broadly conceived. Um, this idea of redress um, and about how it being, I suppose it's well known about Germans and um, making reparations towards Jewish victims of the Second World War. But after about the 1980s, it becomes much, much broader. Uh, you've got the Americans distributing 1.6 billion to Japanese Americans who uh, were put in internment camps in the Second World War. And they do that as compensation. And there are other r- reparation campaigns um, With claimants in South Africa, Namibia, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, uh, the Australian Aboriginals, um, Native Americans, Japanese Americans and also, of course, African Americans. It's been identified as being the result of a new moral order which um, originated around the 1990s. Um, There are some really interesting UK examples Um, particularly during David Cameron's time as Prime Minister. And so in 2010, he he apologises. He says, I'm deeply sorry for the bloody Sunday massacre of 1972 when British paratroopers opened fire uh, on on a crowd of civil rights demonstrators in uh, Londonderry in Northern Ireland. Um, Later on, uh, Mr Cameron as well, he says he's profoundly sorry for the Hillsborough tragedy of 1989. It's a series of failures. Um, it leads to the deaths of 96 people. The authorities blame the football supporters for the tragedy, but actually it was police failures that led directly to it. And w- what's, I think, happening here is you've got political leaders drawing attention to the wrongs committed by governments or institutions of their society's past. And up to this point, societies didn't really look back very much, um, or at, at least regretfully. But when they did look back, they're telling tales um, reinforcing myths of greatness, of winning, and what happens here is there's a change. The, the, there's a change in narrative where the victors are are becoming less important. Um, when previously the losers were being brushed aside, but now the, and the losers' voices were being lost. But now the losers' voices are absolutely coming out. Um, and it, as I say, it's something that hasn't hasn't been going on for very long, indeed. Um, and if you think about it in terms of maritime museums, this is fascinating. Um, this is it's it makes it clear, I think, that how we are now like, more likely to recognise um, the, the the bad deeds of the past rather than the heroic. We're more likely to recognise victims than than those who have been uh, have won who have been victorious. So, I mean, in the past thirty years there are. More memorial museums have opened up than in the previous century. Okay, You've got the, the Memorial Museum of 9-11. Um, there are 16 Holocaust museums have opened up recently in the US alone. Um, there's a museum dedicated to those who died in and who lost loved ones in the bombing of um, Oklahoma City in 1995. There are uh, scores of museums documenting slavery in America, genocide in Armenia, Rwanda and the Balkans. Um, There are others which focus on repression in Eastern Europe, apartheid in South Africa, uh, political disappearances in Argentina, massacres in China and Taiwan. Um, So that's all part of it. But even within um, older institutions, you've got things like the Natural History Museum in London. Um, There's a memorial now alongside natural history specimens of old dinosaurs to lives that have been lost uh, when an earthquake hit the Indian Ocean causing a tsunami in 2004. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, focus all this and to say that actually now we're living in a time where uh, it's a time for honouring losers, for, for giving giving losers in history a voice, whereas for centuries beforehand, history was was all about was written written by and was all
1: about the winners. Excellent, very very good, and very important to very important to to recognise that. I mean, I, I want to sort of. Uh, suggest suggests the opposite as well, and to talk about uh, about the way in which um, sometimes the losers uh, perpetuate a history that is that is false. And as I promised, I was going to talk about a, a book that we recommended uh, on Twitter uh, by an American uh, professor who listened to our podcast on statues, and she pointed us to a book by Adam Dombey, uh, False Cause for Fraud, Fabrication and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. And one of the things that I don't think we really got to grips with uh, in that podcast episode, as she very kindly pointed out, is the the potency of a lot of the Confederate statues uh, that you see around the United States today. And she pointed us uh, to this book. I had a read of it and really enjoyed it. Uh, so just want to thank her uh, for... Pointing us in that direction, and it's often lovely to hear from people who listen to the podcast uh, with suggestions. Um, uh, really, really useful. Uh, uh, history is such a sort of bizarre and bewildering sort of field. There's always so much to read that one can't always keep uh, on top of it all. Uh, well, well it can never keep on top of it all, even in your own even in your own field. But I think what's what's great about this book is that what it looks at is the way in which yeah you know, during the civil war the confederates lose and the way in which their their narrative of defeat their lost cause is is enshrined and and indeed celebrated in the south as a sort of perpetuation of um the the, the roles that many of their 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 families uh, and and particularly white southerners played Um, and one of the things that that the book is very good at doing is it's very good at showing how a lot of the lies and falsehoods uh, that that are perpetuated by uh, the confederate cause now underlie you know some of the structures that are in place within American society and that propped up the sort of Jim Crow uh, system um, and and really sort of you know perpetuated white supremacy. Uh, and one of the things that um, that it looks at in particular is the way in which throughout the uh, 1890s, uh, you know, into 1900, what you see is a series of white supremacist campaigns run um to take over state government, to disenfranchise African Americans, to institute one party rule. And on the basis of that, once they've taken over the sort of political infrastructure, you then see the erecting of Confederate monuments. Uh, that you see increasingly in front of town halls and courthouses and other uh public buildings. And basically the um you know what that is doing is that it is absolutely enshrining white supremacist power which when we think about the the big arguments around black lives matter at the moment and decolonization of history um you know those very public memorials and statues enshrine white supremacist power so i think what you've got there is yes you've got history being written by the by the losers by the losing side but in a way that is really quite um you know quite disturbing moving on i just wanted to also think about how to sort of move back to what you were talking about earlier on about the importance of you know of capturing the viewpoints of losers in history in the sense of those voices that you don't hear and you know and I was teaching last week uh, a class on oral history and I think oral history is a really good example of how you are able to recover the voices of people who weren't necessarily on the winning side or who aren't necessarily part and parcel of uh, the elite's and the sort of traditional views of history. And I was reading there uh, a brilliant book called The Good War, which is an oral history of World War II uh, by a scholar called Studs Turkle. And what it does is it takes, uh, collects together a series of lost voices or voices that aren't heard of. And when you think about most histories of World War II, you know they are about the the military campaigns they're about the leaders they're about the the victors it's about the diplomacy yes there's stuff about the the home front but actually it's quite difficult to recapture the voices of ordinary people people who aren't necessarily the heroes and this is full of examples um there is a, a guy called peter ota who's a, a nisa uh, member of uh, the Nisai. um and he is so he's a, a U.S. citizen of Japanese descent. There's a guy called Johnny DeGrazio, who's, who's just an ordinary guy who doesn't, um, you know, who doesn't see much much active service. There's then a, a guy called J.H. Abbott, who's a conscientious objector. We also have the testimony of a gay Marine uh, tell. Ted Allaby. um there's a young girl uh whose, uh whose testimony is recorded there's also a, a black soldier um uh charles charles gates a black black um african american uh g i and i think part of this part of the book, which is a memory book um is about it's about getting the ordinary experiences of world war two Because, you know, you talk to most people, you know, and actually they can't necessarily identify with the kind of, you know, what they see in the school textbooks. Um, And so what they want is the ordinary people's experience. And I just want to read you an extract from... Uh, the oral testimony of a guy called Johnny DeGrazio sort of you know I mean you can see him very much as a sort of archetypal not loser but just as an ordinary guy um, who you know World War II for him is spent you know is spent gambling uh, basically he grew up in in Chicago he's interviewed uh, he works in a a Greasy Spoon Uh, he's a cab driver for 15 years um, and this is this is what he he remembers. I got drafted in World War Two naturally, like everybody else. I was real patriotic. I wanted to be up front and everything else. I come from a neighbourhood where you done anything a little bit awkward, you were a sissy, or you didn't have this pride, or things like that. When I got drafted and found out it was for non-combatant, I resented that. Then I got the inkling. I volunteered for the paratroopers, and the guy says, "You're better off here." He said, we need you over here and rubbish like that. He wanted more or less to make a dog robber out of me. A dog robber is a guy that cleans the officer's quarters, shines his shoes, takes this, drives a jeep and everything. I says, mister, I come here to fight. I don't want to be no dog robber. I says, I ain't going back to no neighbourhood to tell him I come here to shine shoes. So he says, get out of here. I come from a neighbourhood where pride was pride. A lot of people say you might not have anything, but you still got your pride. To me, pride is something. In other words, joining the army, you were supposed to fight for your country, not this bullshit. You know of Medic Roller? Of course, everybody's got their part. To me, it was something else. When we got overseas to England, the job was actually to uncrate the equipment Take it to their destination and bullshit like that. What the heck was it? So and, and so it goes on. And so what you're getting here is a is just an ordinary guy's you know, an ordinary American's response to World War II. The fact that he, you know, he's a he could be sort of described as a sort of as a a loser, a deadbeat, but also there's something about there's a matter of pride. In him, that he doesn't want to go there just to be somebody's sort of servant, you know, just to sort of do the menial jobs, but he wants to be, you know, somebody out who's seeing action. Uh, And so, what this book does is it captures those ordinary stories, those ordinary experiences. And I think that's something very powerful that if you look at a whole range of oral history projects around the world, you're able to recover the oral history testimony of people who aren't necessarily the victors, you know, who are, you know, the people who are less successful in life.
0: That was wonderful, James. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for your work there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our uh, podcast on the history of losers. I have enjoyed it very much. Uh, Do please keep in touch with us on social media. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. If you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out my new podcast, The Mariner's Mirror
1: Podcast. And you can follow me at James Daybell, and you can follow the pod on at Unexpected Pod. You can also check out everything we have been doing and our back catalogue at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We are desperately trying to keep everything going uh, and to do at least two podcasts a week. Uh, However, we have to pay for producers and all of that kind of thing to keep it going. And anything that you could do to support the podcast would be wonderful. And we have a Patreon page uh, and anything you could do would be very much appreciated. Um, You can also help by buying one of
0: our books. We've got books, a big book on all sorts of things, literally everything in the whole of history. Um, We have also got smaller books on Tudors and Vikings and World War II and the Romans, they make very, very good Christmas presents. We can sign them, we can make them out for you, and so you can pop them in someone's stocking. Um, They're brilliant for kids, they're brilliant for adults, and we're very proud of them. Um, So do please check our books page on the website. Uh, But that's it for now. We're going to be coming back next week with the history of
1: friends, I think, James, is that right? Oh, I think the history of friends, and not here the uh, the brilliant uh, situation comedy, uh, but the history of friends and friendship uh, throughout history, which is brilliant. It's all about Francis Bacon, as <laughs> you will as you will know. Everything comes back to Francis Bacon. I haven't read any Bacon for a while, um, so I'm going to enjoy that. Good, me too. Thank you all for listening, guys, and uh, we'll be with you soon. Cheerio, bye bye, bye guys. Take care.